Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be right here for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week, and heavens, do we have an excellent show for you tonight. Joining me is author and Salem radio host, the eminent Dr. Sebastian Gorka, to talk about the excruciating Democrats who refuse to condemn Hamas, as well as chief of staff to One Nation Senator Pauline Hansen, the very excellent James Ashby, to discuss the fast heating up electoral landscape in James and my hope mutual home state of Queensland. But first, it's been nearly three weeks since the horrific Islamic terrorist attack by Hamas on October 7th in Israel. Since that day, the Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, has launched a series of airstrikes against Hamas targets in Gaza in an attempt to destroy the terror group once and for all. This campaign, tragically, has led to the loss of thousands of Palestinian civilian lives. This is because, as we know, Hamas situates its bases in civilian heavy locations like hospitals and hides its weapons near schools and apartment buildings. This isn't new. It's been going on for years. And the reasons for it are obvious. First, it's a disincentive for the Israelis to attack Hamas targets with the near certainty of civilian casualties. And second, Palestinian civilian casualties in Gaza are a bonus in the eyes of Hamas because they can use them as global anti-Israel propaganda to claim that Israelis are indiscriminately bombing civilians. And of course, that's not true. Prior to the airstrikes beginning, Israel issued a 24-hour warning to Gazans in the north to evacuate to the south for their own safety. However, Hamas responded by telling those in the north of Gaza to stay put, stating, our Palestinian people reject the threat made by the leaders of the occupation and its call for Gazans to leave their houses and leave to the south or to Egypt. As such, civilians remained in the area when Israel began its airstrikes. However, the fact remains, Israel does not want Palestinian civilian casualties, and unlike Hamas, takes steps to avoid them. And why would Israel target Palestinian civilians anyway? Humanitarian issues aside, Israel stands to gain nothing strategically from indiscriminately bombing innocent Palestinians. That just plays right into the hands of Hamas who wear those civilian casualties like a human rights badge. And it's working. While the Western world largely sympathized with Israel after the brutal October 7th terrorist attack, the repeated airstrikes against Gaza have raised a few eyebrows, especially as more and more footage emerges from the Gaza Strip, depicting wounded children crying over the bodies of their relatives who have been killed in the Israeli strikes. As such, Pro-Palestine protests have continued around the world, drawing huge crowds, especially in cities like Los Angeles in the USA, as well as Washington DC and New York City. Some attendees are even accusing the Israelis and the US by proxy, thanks to Joe Biden's support of Israel, of enacting a genocide against Palestinians, like this protest in Washington DC. Stop the genocide! 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 Stop the
And in Brooklyn, New York, we heard that familiar, insidious cry of from the river to the sea. Now, as I have discussed before on this program, while from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free might sound all well and good, what it really calls for is an extermination of the state of Israel from the river to the sea, and of course, of its Jewish people. Nevertheless, there will be many at these protests who insist they are not anti-Semitic and, and are simply part of the ceasefire movement, which is currently quite noisy in the USA. There are also 13 members of the US Congress who support this ceasefire movement and introduced such a resolution to Congress last week. The group includes, of course, the squad. Progressive Democrats Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. The resolution urges the Biden administration to immediately call for and facilitate de-escalation and a ceasefire to urgently end the current violence, as well as to promptly send and facilitate the entry of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. Now this sounds innocuous, until you consider what the core of the pro-Palestine movement really is, both those protesting on the streets and among the Democrats calling for a ceasefire. Now regarding the protesters, we in Australia all remember the shameful demonstrations that broke out in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th Hamas attack, with cries of gas the Jews being chanted in front of the Sydney Opera House. This style of protest has given way to more civil, tactful offerings from pro-Palestinian activists. Similarly, in America, the early protests also reeked of anti-Semitism. In New York City, a pro-Palestinian rally on October the 8th featured activists waving Palestinian flags and chanting, resistance is justified, globalize the Intifada and smash the settler Zionist state, as reported by the Times of Israel. But that wasn't all. Among the pro-Palestinian side, the mood was celebratory and spiteful. Demonstrators chanted 700, apparently referring to the confirmed number of Israeli fatalities in the attack so far, and held up the number seven on their hands while making throat-slitting gestures. Others flashed victory signs with their hands while shouting insults. New York Post reporter John Levine attended the protest and had this to say about it. Hello. My name is John Levine. I am a reporter at the New York Post. And on Sunday, I attended a rally in New York City for Hamas. It's hard to believe that I just said that, but it is actually true. And it was organized in part by the Democratic Socialists of America. And while I was at this rally, I saw a lot of very curious people, hundreds of people, in fact, dressed up as Hamas fighters and, and various other terrorist or Islamic Jihad garb, and it was very disturbing. A number of them were chanting death to Israel or, or, or we want it all or various other chants. 
And these are things that I heard and, and, and other people heard. That sentiment is the basis of the pro-Palestinian movement. It's not pro-Palestine, it's anti-Israel. These activists revealed their true colours in those early days with their primal, spiteful reaction to the rape, dismemberment and murder of 1,400 innocent Israelis. The same is true of certain members of Congress, namely Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian-American. She has made her hatred of Israel abundantly clear during her time in Congress, and it was never so clear as when she released her initial statement in the aftermath of the Hamas terrorist attack. I grieve the Palestinian and Israeli lives lost yesterday, today, and every day. I am determined as ever to fight for a just future where everyone can live in peace, without fear and with true freedom, equal rights, and human dignity. The path to that future must include lifting the blockade, ending the occupation, and dismantling the apartheid system that creates the suffocating, dehumanizing conditions that lead to resistance. And that final word there, resistance, is the key. People like Rashida Tlaib see the sadistic attack by Hamas as justified. That's why they refer to it as resistance, as if the perpetrators just couldn't help themselves, so pushed were they by the big, bad Israelis to act out of sheer desperation. But desperation is not the motivation of Hamas. Israel's ambassador to Australia, Amir Maimon, outlined the real reason why Hamas is doing what they're doing at an address to the National Press Club on Wednesday. Hamas is not interested in establishing a Palestinian state along Israel, but solely in the destruction of the state of Israel. In fact, the establishment of a Palestinian state is directly opposed to the Hamas conception of its ultimate goal, the establishment of an Islamic state in the entire territory, including the sovereign territory of Israel, from the river to the sea, as the slogans say. It is not interested in creation, but in total destruction. Not in peace, but in internal war, eternal war, until extreme Islamism assumes power. The only solution, according to Hamas, is the destruction of Israel and the annihilation of its inhabitants. It's also very important to remember that since October the 7th, the Hamas fired over 7,500 missiles. And they fire all these missiles in order to kill people, innocent civilians. What I think has largely been lost in public discussion of the Israel-Hamas conflict is that the catalyst for this particular bout of violence is radical Islam. Thanks to the pandemic and also to the successful attempts to defeat ISIS in the Middle East, radical Islam has been largely absent from the public consciousness in the Western world over the past several years. The recent attack on Israel is a grim reminder that radical Islam is very much alive and it's just as hideous, depraved and godless as ever. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I am not saying I condone the fact that innocent Palestinians are being killed in Israel's quest to destroy Hamas. Not at all. But for anyone who is drifting to the side of Palestine and therefore Hamas, you should ask yourself, what are you really supporting? Joining me to discuss all of that and more is the wonderful Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Dr. Sebastian Gorka, so lovely to have you here. How are you this evening? I am uh, breathing. I have a heartbeat, and that's <laughs> always a good way to start. We're trying to save Western civilization, but uh, the fight goes on. We're good, and we are busy. Excellent. The fight goes on. We're good, and we're busy. That is what we all like to hear. Now, Sebastian, Lots of news going on in U.S. Congress. After three tumultuous weeks, there is finally a new Speaker of the House, Louisiana Representative Mike Johnson. Now, he's well known for his social conservatism, which many people will be pleased at. Uh, but what's particularly being focused on by the media is that he is a Donald Trump ally. How do you think this strong association with the former president will impact his reception with the American public? Well, if you think of the fact that there's no human being alive today who's garnered the votes of more than 130 uh, ballots, uh, 130 million ballots in two presidential elections, uh, I, I would say that's a good thing that he's in the uh, good graces of the former and God willing, if we do our part, the future president. It's so very telling that a swamp creature was nominated when Jim Jordan failed to get the requisite number of votes as speaker. And when that individual's name was drawn out of the hat, President Trump instantly said, nope, that guy is a swamp creature. I'm not working with him. And he withdrew his nomination almost instantaneously. And now we have Mike Johnson, who I think in one sentence yesterday used the word God three times, much to the shock and horror of the Democrats. So, <laughs> Um, this is a guy who started his speakership with a prayer uh, in Congress. Um, he is pissing off all the right people, <laughs> the Washington Post, CNN. Uh, as, an, as we said when I was in the White House, uh, you only take flack when you're over the target. So he's annoying all the good people, and that's a very good beginning. I think so. It's always good to annoy all the right people. And, and you make an excellent point there. Um, people forget just how popular Donald Trump actually is, don't they? At least among Republicans. I mean, the media will sort of, you know, oh my God, he's a Trump ally. But they forget, don't they, that for a lot of Americans, that's a huge selling point. Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, look at the polling. I, I don't think we've ever had it in modern politics that we are 13 months before an election, 13 months, and the leading candidate is more than 50 percentage points against his nearest challenger, whether it's the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, whether it's Nikki Haley, President Trump is just leaving them in the dust. Even the governor of Florida, he's in single digits. He's at 9%. Likewise, even the Washington Post, it was delicious to watch the Washington Post try to diss its own poll two <laughs> weeks ago that had President Trump winning against a head-to-head -head with Joe Biden. To him, ABC and Washington Post trash their own poll. 
Um, yeah, that's the reality. Americans love President Trump. Why? Very simply because he loves America and nobody owns him. Not the unions, not the big oil interests, not big pharma, nobody. And that's why they have to destroy him because he's his own man, Daisy. Yes, and I remember when he came to power, they just, uh, particularly the media, couldn't stand the fact that he just didn't give a toss what they thought. You know, we go, you are fake news, you are fake news, you are very fake news. It was, it was extraordinary. And it, it's funny, you mentioned the poll against Biden. The mythology for the last year has been, hasn't it, that Ron DeSantis beats Biden, but Trump loses to Biden. Do you think yeah. that's just always been false? That is a Democrat talking point, and it's also a rhino, a Republican in name only talking point. Uh, the idea that the man who garnered more votes than any other incumbent president in history, 74 million, and if you believe his rival got 81 million, I have a bridge to sell you in Connecticut. The idea that the man who's already won one general election can't win another one. It's just a talking point. It's just an attempt to disenfranchise uh, and to demobilize those who love President Trump. And it's not going to work. Look at the last nine months. Every time there's a new attack, a new indictment, a new arrest. What happens to President Trump? His popularity skyrockets and he brings in millions of dollars more of donations to his campaign. It's, it's, it's a mathematical, it's a logarithmic progression. <laughs> Every time, whether it's the Mar-a-Lago raid, the documents, January 6th, the insanity of, of Atlanta, every time he gets more popular because they say, oh, if that's how much the establishment hates him, then he must be a good guy. Because it's a, it's a dreadful own goal by the, by the Democrats, all this prosecution of Donald Trump. I mean, I, I love to see it. I mean, as, as the saying goes, isn't it never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake? And I, I think we're seeing a lot... <laughs> a bit of this now. Now, Sebastian, we, we have to talk about, as they say in my country, these ratbag Democrats who have been very supportive of Hamas during the, the, the dreadful um, events in Israel. A Democratic Congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, especially has made it very clear whose side she's on, especially after refusing to delete a tweet in which she backed Hamas's claim that Israel was responsible for bombing a Gaza hospital, supposedly killing 500 Palestinians, but as we know, the claim was proved false. It was instead a rocket from the group Islamic Jihad that misfired and it landed in the hospital car park, not on the horse or not on the hospital. But despite this, Tlaib has yet to withdraw her accusation or apologize. So here we see an elected representative continuing to perpetuate Hamas propaganda without fact or remorse. How should Joe Biden manage this skullduggery within his own party? Is that a trick question, counsel? <laughs> um, he's... <laughs> He's not going to manage it because he's on the side of these people. I mean, this is the reality. We live in the most perverse of times, Daisy. We, we live in a time where our countries, where our civilization are led by a quote-unquote elite that hates the country, that hates our civilization. Let me just remind your viewers, what did Joe Biden's former boss, Barack Obama, say on the campaign trail for the presidency? He actually said more than once openly, we are about to radically, fundamentally alter this nation. Now, hang on a second. 
do you radically fundamentally change anything that you love? If I told my wife, I, I love you, but I want to fundamentally change you, <laughs> uh, I think I'd be sleeping on the, on the sofa tonight. <laughs> so the, these are people, look, just look at the war in the Middle East. Mm. Whose side is the establishment on? 1,400 people murdered, the, the largest loss of life for the Jewish people since the Shoah, since the Holocaust. And what does Biden do? Biden wags his finger at Bibi. And the first thing he says is, ooh, Israel better abide by the Geneva Conventions, as if Hamas literally beheading newborns, you know, burning grandmothers, raping women at rock concerts before they kill them, as if somehow that is, you know, comports with the Geneva Conventions. And then when he lands at Ramstein Air Base after his complete disaster of a, of a you know, diplomatic visit to the Middle East, he says in his senility, he says, and and Hamas, those guys, with regards to the ho the hospital bombing, better learn to shoot straight. <gasps> and you go, hang on a second. Is that meant to be a joke? Or are you actually saying that jihadis should learn to kill more Israelis more accurately? This is the perversity. Why are we giving Iran $6 billion? Why are we on the side of those who hate us? It was my proudest moment in the White House when it was time to either renew or end the Obama-Iran deal. And Trump, Summers was the cabinet, everybody, HR, the chief of staff. And he said to me and Bannon, he said, all right, guys, tell them why we need to kill Obama's Iran deal. And we did the, you know, Washington 62nd elevator pitch. We said, why it's bad for Israel, why it's bad for the Middle East, why it gives Iran nuclear weapons, and why it's bad for Americans. And after that, what did he do? He killed it in the crib. He killed the Iran deal. We, we are living in the reverse of that whether it's kowtowing to China, whether it's giving in to Iran right now, these people are in, if, even if they're not in league with our enemies, they sympathize with them. Why? Because they think America's the problem. If you think America's the problem, then of course you're gonna sympathize with those who hate America. Mm. Yes, I mean, that's an excellent point. I didn't know that Joe Biden made that comment. I mean, whether that was a, a tasteless joke or, so, or something much more sinister, either way, incredibly poor form. And look, you, you mentioned, you know, the the minute um, Israel started defending itself, people sort of urged caution and talked about the Geneva Conventions. It struck me the reaction um, when Russia invaded Ukraine um, was was totally different from, from Joe Biden and the White House. I mean, you could just tell they were jonesing for World War III. I, it was, they were, you know, throwing money at them and, you know, go, go in and, you know, kill the Russians, all of that. What's the difference then between Ukraine and Israel? Well, because uh, Ukraine is deemed to be the underdog, and of course, Palestinians are deemed to be the underdog. Israel is deemed to be the oppressor, despite the fact that this is the most um, 
the nation that has suffered the most in recent history. There are only 9 million uh, people in Israel today. Compare that to the Holocaust of 6 million, and you realize the enormity of this tiny nation surrounded by a sea of people who want to kill them. And on top of that, and I, I don't want to get into, you know, this, this would take hours to unpack. Mm. You have to understand U Ukraine is, is the epicenter of um, corruption for the Democrat Party, mm. whether it's George Soros, whether it's the Open Society Foundation, whether it's the Clinton Global Initiative, whether it's Burisma. Remember, the most corrupt energy company in Eastern Europe hired Vice President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, who had no background in energy, no background in Eastern Europe, for a no-show job that paid him $83,000 a month. Not a year, $83,000 a month for what? What you know, Hunter Biden is a crack adult junkie who was kicked out of the Navy because he's a junkie. Uh, what were they hiring him for? For recommendations on which Russian <laughs> prostitute to sleep with? I think Ukrainians have, you know, have got a lock on that. Ukraine is the epicenter for pay-for-play corruption. And as a result, you send billions over there sloshing around and you know that a good fair chunk of that change is going to make it back into the DNC, into the Democrat coffers. Mm, gosh, it's, it is all just mind-blowingly awful. I look at the state of the world and I think, oh, wow, where are we? You know, what, what evil forces are at work here? Now, um, on, on the subject, again, of Israel, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has recently called for an expansion of the global coalition against the Islamic State terror group to also fight Hamas like they did ISIS. Uh, is this a move you would like to see happen? Well, of course, but it's irrelevant if it's if it's France or anybody else doing it. I mean, wh when does the international community ever do something that's meaningful and lasting? It's it's not when you know Lilliputian states or or states that don't agree with you know most of the world decide to do something. It's when America leads, and this is this is the sad reality. I, I'm about to finish an article on on why we were safe for four years. And let's just put it into perspective. T take politics out of the equation for a moment, if we can. When my boss was president, what did we have? Not only as Americans were we safe, were we prosperous, we had the biggest economy the world had ever seen, stock market records being broken every week. And that's not just for fat cats. If you've got a pension, how the stock market is doing is very, very important to anybody who has a pension. The border was secure. Crime, you know, had a lid on it. And then what happens when Biden comes to power? We surrender Afghanistan. We have 13 of our war fighters murdered by ISIS. Uh, ISIS, by the way, whose caliphate we destroyed when we were in the White House. Mm. The border is open. 16 million illegals enter the nation in the last three years. And then what happens? Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. And then what happens? China remilitarizes, starts flying past our aircraft, buzzing our ships in international waters. And then Israel suffers the worst attack since the Holocaust. We remember we were told Donald Trump is the warmonger. He's going to start World <laughs> War Three. He's a crazy man. But it's strange. No wars for four years. Hmm. Peace and prosperity. A stable world. The senile old windbag arrives, and we have the world on fire. And here's the bad news for you. Look, my 
field is national security. And I'm not attempting to be a hyperbolic, but I guarantee you when you have people who don't know what they're doing, who at the same time hate America, Daisy, this will get worse in the next 13 months. Until the election, this will get worse. Well, you know, I, I actually saw an interesting um, tweet yesterday, which was a, a, a guy saying that they called what they only called World War One, World War One at the start of World War Two, and they didn't call World War Two, uh, World War Two until a few years into World War Two. And he said, "Look, has World War Three started?" And we just don't know yet. I, it really quite spooked me because I think he has. A point. Um, Sebastian, would you say then that Donald Trump really was the final checkpoint between, you know, the defense of Western civilization and all of the dreadful tyrants of the world coming up and rising up and creating the havoc they've created? Well, look at what he did. Uh, you know, I'm always amused by, you know, the sudden expertise journalists have in the Wagner group after the quote-unquote coup in Russia. Mm. When we were in the White House, we were very familiar with the Wagner group. This is all, you know, declassified. You can look it up for yourself now. When we told the president that there's 300 Russian uh, little green men running around the Middle East trying to destabilize the Middle East, killing innocent people at the behest of Vladimir Putin. What did my boss do? He didn't talk about red lines. Mm. He didn't make you know fancy speeches at the UN. He told the then Secretary of Defense, kill them or kill them now. As a result, US forces, when we were in the administration, killed 300 mercenaries from the Wagner Group who were there on the express purposes of serving the Kremlin. Do you know what Vladimir Putin did in response? No, what did he do? He wet himself. <gasps> he, didn't, he didn't even hold a press conference. To put it into perspective, no president since the October Revolution of 1917, no, no, not even the great cold warrior, Ronald Reagan, no American president has killed 300 Russian soldiers in one day. My boss did it. Why? He was sending a message to Vlad. Vlad, stop, stop screwing around, because next time it might be something a little bit closer to home. Likewise, in Syria, he wasn't a neocon interventionist. He didn't believe the garbage of the Bush administration that you can invade other countries and turn them into democracies. But when we uh, briefed the president that Bashar al-Assad, the bloodthirsty tyrant of Syria, was going to use chemical weapons again against uh, unarmed civilians, women and children. We didn't invade the country. President Trump said, oh, really? That base where they're preparing the chemical uh, weapons uh, turned it into a sheet of glass, and he <laughs> launched 52 cruise missiles, turned the base into a sheet of glass. And what was happening, this, this is the most delicious part of all. Do you know what was happening at the same time? President Trump happened to be hosting Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago for a state dinner. And you can see the photographs, it's hilarious. After the airbase had been flattened, he leant over the diminutive dictator as he was <laughs> eating his chocolate cake. <laughs> and through the interpreter, he said, um, I just flattened the Syrian airbase that was planning chemical weapons attacks against civilians. What was he doing? What did that have to do with China? Because he was sending a message. America's back. We don't invade other people's countries to try and turn them into Switzerland. But if you cross lines, 
We will come down on you like the hammers of hell. That was the message for Xi. That was the message for Kim in North Korea. That was a message for the mullahs in Iran. And it worked. I call that surgical strength. And that's why we were safe. That's why Australia was safe. That's why the whole world was safe uh, under the president uh, under the president of the United States, whose name was Donald Trump. It's quite incredible, isn't it? And what I what I find so amusing is the the narrative the left tried to spin that Trump was somehow friends with Putin and and liked Putin and liked Xi Jinping. It's like really like that is just double speak. Now, Sebastian, just finally, um, you retweeted a video of a re recent incident, a terrible incident at Cooper Union College, um, in which Jewish students were locked inside the library for their own safety as a mob of pro-Palestine supporters hammered on the door. We've got the clip. Let's have a quick look. Now, for the viewers who didn't quite hear what the young man said, he said, are we being locked in? How timely? I mean, Sebastian, does the left really hate Jewish people as much as they seem to right now? Uh, good timing. Uh, I just wrote an article for AMAC um, on the great Jew hatred switcheroo. Uh, there is institutional anti-Semitism in the world, and today its home is the left. It's not just Rashida Tlaib, it's not just Ilhan Omar. It's on the streets of Sydney. I've been to Sydney. I've stood outside that beautiful opera house to hear Australian nationals, Muslims, scream, gas the Jews. Mm. Yesterday, here in Washington, D.C., the most expensive college in America, named after our founding father, George Washington University, that costs $75,000 per semester, the students projected onto the wall of the library, which is named after a Jewish benefactor. So there's a Jewish donor building, and they broadcast onto the wall praise for the martyrs <gasps> of Hamas and the phrase, liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. What oh. is the river? It's the River Jordan. What is the land between the River Jordan and the sea? It's Israel. George Washington University students are calling for the extermination of the modern Israeli state. We need to wake up. It's the reason I wrote my first book, Defeating Jihad. I want everybody in Western civilization to be clear. This isn't about the Jews. Mm. This is about the Jews and the Christians. This is a Judeo-Christian civilization. And as the jihadis preach, they say, first we come for the Saturday people, the Jews, mm. yes. then we come for the Sunday people. We've got to make the connection. This isn't about something happening far away in Europe. This is about a civilizational war. And we have to wake up. Mm. All decent civilized people need to wake up, Daisy. Very well said, Sebastian, very well said. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Uh, this was wonderfully enlightening and informative and we hope you'll join us again soon. Anytime, God bless. Well, anyone who followed my work from the start of 2020 to around the start of 2022 will know exactly what I think of Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. In polite terms, I don't like her. 
I will never forgive her for using COVID as a tool with which to win the 2020 Queensland state election, by which I mean effectively lying by omission to Queenslanders by painting COVID as the worst illness since the bubonic plague and portraying herself as the only thing standing between Queenslanders and certain death by virus. As such, she exploited the toxic parochialism of Queenslanders, and I can say that about Queenslanders because I live there, and portrayed people from Victoria and New South Wales as lepers. This, for lack of a better term, terrified people into voting for her. And the Queensland LNP, led at the time by Deb Frecklington, just rolled over and let it happen. Disgraceful. Palaszczuk's appalling, pointless Queensland border closure not only ripped families apart, but denied people crucial health care when they desperately needed it. Who could forget the death of an unborn twin whose mother, from Ballina, was unable to go to a Gold Coast hospital thanks to the border closure when her babies needed urgent surgery? Instead, she had to wait 16 hours for an emergency flight to have the surgery in Sydney. As a result, one of her unborn babies died. Here's what Palaszczuk had to say about it. You have to understand too, like people living in New South Wales, they have New South Wales hospitals. In Queensland, we have Queensland hospitals. That unborn baby died because of the political ambitions of Anastasia Palaszczuk, who chose to exploit a virus from which over 99% of people recover, even pre-vaccine. And let's not forget, exemptions to the border were most certainly granted. They were just made often for economic reasons as was admitted on another occasion by Palaszczuk's lackey, former Queensland Chief Health Officer, the ridiculous Jeanette Young. I've given exemptions for people in entertainment and film because that's bringing a lot of money into this state. And can I say, we need every single dollar. And if it's safe, then I look at how it can be done. And whether that's the AFL, the NRL, whether it's swimming, tennis, all of the sports, cricket, I guess that ever-important, sacred health advice didn't matter if you were an actor or a sports star. Never mind, Palaszczuk made Jeanette governor of Queensland for her troubles. A predictable appointment, in my opinion, given Jeanette effectively facilitated Palaszczuk's 2020 election win with her politically motivated COVID directives. Still, that was then and this is now. I have enjoyed not having to talk about Anastasia Palaszczuk for over a year. I've been able to push her press conferences to the back of my mind, an unpleasant memory that only pops up in my darker moments. Regrettably, that Palaszczuk hiatus has come crashing to an end because it's election season in Queensland with both Palaszczuk and leader of the Liberal National Party opposition, David Crisofulli, launching their election campaigns over the weekend. Queensland Labor's offering was the typical, unjustifiably braggadocious stuff we've all come to expect from Palaszczuk, with a touch of that toxic Queensland parochialism thrown in for good measure. We have a saying about Queensland. 
it's beautiful one day and perfect the next. It means we believe our best days are well and truly ahead of us. I grew up in Durack. My grandfather came to Queensland as a migrant. He was a boilermaker. He said to me it was tough work, but it was a job that put food on the table and a roof over his head. He did the very best he could for his family. And I want the best for every single family in this state. It's why I got into politics, because I believe that no matter who you are or where you come from, you deserve the best opportunities in life. Women's and Girls Health Strategy will make sure that women and girls can access safe, quality care where they are heard and believed about their own health and well-being. All that talk of providing women and girls with safe, quality care is fairly cheap, considering Queensland Labor has introduced gender self-identification laws, which means that any Tom, Richard or Harry can identify as a woman, have that identification legally validated on their birth certificate without needing any medical assessment or proof of gender dysphoria, and therefore they can access any and all of the supposedly women's services Palaszczuk is promising, not to mention their bathrooms. Oh, the irony. It's a good thing then that the Queensland LNP has put forward what is actually quite a good start to their campaign, I think. In addition to a pamphlet outlining what the LNP is calling the right priorities for Queensland's future, a title I, I rather like the sound of, emphasis on the right, LNP leader David Christofulli put forward this campaign video. Queenslanders' priorities are my priorities and the priorities of my team. Sick Queenslanders were left waiting to be treated by hospital staff for thousands of hours last year. A new data shows Queensland paramedics spent 147,000 hours waiting on ramps to offload patients last year. The ambulance union says there's been little improvement in recent months. And we'll continue to put our solutions forward better resources, better triaging, sharing data in real time and putting doctors and nurses back in charge to make sure that we see an end to what are historic levels of ramping, of wait times, of delays in surgeries that are costing Queenslanders their lives. She died in my arms on the lounge room floor at approximately 11.30pm because they didn't get there. Now, this kind of raw, real campaigning is much more likely, I think, to hit home with Queenslanders than Palaszczuk's offering of me, me, me. As is the fact that soon after the voice referendum failed, David Crisofulli walked back the Liberal National Party's commitment to a state treaty with Indigenous groups, asserting the state had spoken and it wasn't interested in going down that separatist path. Palaszczuk was quick to follow suit, claiming a treaty couldn't go ahead without bipartisan support. However, anyone with a brain can tell she was thrilled the LNP did it first. That way, she was able to act on the mood of the state while appeasing the Wokies in her party by blaming a lack of bipartisanship. Nevertheless, the fact Chrisofulli did it first leads me to believe that maybe this time the Queensland LNP has some fight in them and are not going to avoid saying and doing conservative things because they don't want left-wing media outlets to say mean things about them, which seems to have been the pitfall of just about every Liberal government or opposition in Australia over the past decade. 
Perhaps the Queensland LNP will be the ones to set an example for the rest of the nation's Liberals by not trying to appease people who are never, ever, 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 ever going to vote for them. Particularly since, according to recent polling, they may actually have a decent shot at victory. A YouGov poll conducted by the Courier-Mail released this week showed Anastasia Palaszczuk is, for the first time, no longer Queensland's preferred Premier. It also reveals the LNP has extended its two-party lead over Labor to 52-48%, to and that Palaszczuk's net satisfaction rating is now negative 20, which is the equal worst ever result in the history of YouGov's polling for the Courier-Mail. This is encouraging, but nevertheless, the LNP has to go on the attack, not mince around as it did under Deb Frecklington. There is so much they can get Queensland Labor on. They just need to have the proverbial chutzpah to do it. Joining me to discuss the state of our mutual home state is Chief of Staff to One Nation Senator Pauline Hanson, the very excellent James Ashby. James Ashby, it is so wonderful to see you. How are you going? Yeah, good, Daisy. Much better than the cities. We in remote Queensland do very well without all that congestion. So, yeah, very well, thanks. <laughs> well, yes, I've been braving Sydney peak hour traffic, uh, you know, one, once a week for the last <laughs> couple of months. And the one thing I don't miss about Sydney is the traffic, that is for sure. Now, James, yeah. you've got to tell me, what did you think of Dear Anastasia Palaszczuk's campaign video? Well, she used a lot of lipstick, I noticed, <laughs> but still that pig was very visible. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those campaign tricks that the Labor Party like to use. They dress up uh, what has been quite a dismal last few years. Look, they started off rather well, as you can appreciate. Nine years is a long time ago. Um, they unexpectedly came to government and Anastasia Palaszczuk, I don't think was necessarily the choice to lead the Labor Party at that point, but... Um, as would see it, she's she's made a reasonable gig of it over the last almost decade. And I think that's the thing she's holding out for. That's why she's staying in that uh, Premier role, is to beat the last record set by Peter Beattie as the longest-serving Labor Premier. <laughs> well, it certainly looks a bit like that. And what struck me about her campaign, her campaign video is that it would just seemed like me, me, me it was just all about Palaszczuk as if to sort of quell any doubt that she'd be leading the party. Did you get that vibe from it as well? Well, that is one, one good point you've raised. But the point that I'd rather see is the fact that who else is there within the Queensland Labor Party that's worth promoting, that's got any credibility left. Stephen Miles certainly doesn't have any credibility amongst the, the Queensland population. Um, Shannon Fenderman is the one they're tipping to take Anastasia's role, and she's slowly building that reputation in Queensland, but she's still broadly not known to a lot of Queenslanders. But who else does the Labor Party in Queensland have apart from Anastasia Palaszczuk? 
It is very true, actually. I mean, if you think of Stephen Miles, nobody likes Stephen Miles. And I think everyone's memory of Stephen Miles in Queensland yeah. is that he was always Palaszczuk's bad news guy during the pandemic. Like, yeah. You must remember, don't you, those press conferences. Whenever it was good news, it was Anastasia going, oh, double zero. But whenever it was bad news, don't you remember, they always, uh, they always just wheeled out Stephen Miles. Do you think that's what a lot of people still think of him? Oh, for sure. And that's why he struggled to get any traction within the, the left faction, which he's a part of, uh, to try and take over that premiership role. Um, I don't think he'll ever see premiership. Uh, and in actual fact, I don't think they'll be in government after this next election. Well, I really do hope not because I'm I'm hopelessly sick of them, and I was quite um, heartened, I guess, um, at at the LNP's sort of campaign launch. I mean, David Crisofulli, he put out what I think is actually quite an impressive first campaign video offering, and he was focusing on issues like the cost of living crisis and youth crime, and the, the bread and butter issues. Do you think the Queensland LNP mm. is finally playing to win? Well, David Christopher is probably the best they've put up for a very long time. You've got to have a look at the history of the, the LNP. Deb Frecklington certainly didn't have the support of Queenslanders when they ran at that last election. Tim Nichols, the one before. Um, they've, they've remained in opposition for a long time. And you've got to remember, Daisy, next year marks a very strong and long milestone for the Labor Party in Queensland. Next year will be 30 years that they've ruled Queensland out of 35. So. We don't have a strong history since the days of Joe Biocchi-Peterson of Conservatives uh, running this state. So um, he's got a tough task ahead of him. I think, though, that David Crisofulli has a softer side uh, that Queenslanders, particularly in the southeast, will probably appreciate. Whether that resonates in the north, uh, north of the southeast corner is a different story, though. We know he's a moderate. We know that he stands for a lot of those left-leaning policies that the Liberal Party have put forward in other states. And let's not forget, David Crisofulli chose to take his people down a path of the path to treaty here in Queensland by passing that legislation only months before we were to head to a referendum here on the voice to parliament. So I don't think he's necessarily the guy who will run Queensland in the uh, conservative fashion that we're used to uh, a national or Liberal Party of the past, but he's certainly looking better and stronger than the, the current alternative, which is a, a stale, dry, old Palaszczuk government un, uh, uh, under Labor. Well, yes, I, I mean, I quite like David Crisofulli. I, I remember I've, I've done television panels for him in the past and he, he struck me as someone um, who really does mean well. And, and perhaps I agree mm. with you, it might be hard to kind of sell him in the north because he comes across as a very urban guy, like very, very city. But perhaps do you think that quality about him that is genuinely well-meaning, could that win over more people in the regions? Well, time will only tell, but you've got to remember, I first met David Christopher when he was Deputy Mayor of Townsville Council, and he was Deputy Mayor alongside a Labor uh, a mayor at that time, uh, Jenny Hill's still up there. The CFMEU got offside with David Christopher and quite literally forced him out of Townsville. And that's why he finds himself on the Gold Coast. He was probably a little too progressive at that stage for that council. He's down there now. Um, 
I think over the, the time he's spent on the Gold Coast, he really has lost touch with what has happened in the north and the central parts of this state. I live in central Queensland, so I'm acutely aware of the difficulties that we face uh, and certainly the lack of funding that we face in, in this part of the region. There's also a big push, Daisy, if you, if you look closely, there's an undercurrent growing from Gladstone to North Queensland and far North Queensland, where they're hoping to split off as a separate state altogether because of the fact that our regions have largely been neglected over far too many decades. But as I say to those people, well, if we split the state from Gladstone North, what happens to the people in regions like St George and Roma and all those regional western parts of Queensland in the south uh, of our state? What happens to them? Because they will become the future forgotten like they already are now of what would be a new state. So splitting the state's not the right option. There has to be a better balance. There has to be better representation of the regions. I don't think Chris uh, Chris fully actually understands that, and Labor certainly have no idea on how that feels. So you, you wouldn't be a fan of a, a kind of quote-unquote Quexit movement then in Queensland to split the state? No. <laughs> sorry, no, look, I had to... I, I don't think we're at that point yet, yeah. I had to say Quexit, I'm sorry. It, it came to my head and I thought, not perfect name <laughs> for the movement. But you do make an excellent point, though. It's all very well, isn't it, to talk about splitting the state. And I've heard that mm. argument, and to a, to a degree... It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there's a huge cultural difference between, say, the north of Queensland and central Queensland and southeast Queensland. But, again, it's that forgotten pocket of the regions, isn't it, down south that will get absolutely left behind. What do you think um, Chris yeah. Foley's best bet is for catering to the regions then? Well, there's a number of things that certainly we'll be targeting as a party, as one nation, um, and, and it's up to David Christofulli as to whether he wants to listen or not. I see David needing to, first and foremost, uh, start talking to those minor parties, one nation, the Catters party as well, because they do have the ear. We certainly listen to the regions better than the two major parties. Keeping in mind too, David Christofulli's got a great challenge. The majority of his members are located in the southeast corner of this state. Mm. Now, unlike federal, where the federal part of Queensland, they've got seats basically from the Sunshine Coast all the way to the tip of uh, this state, uh, on a state level, they don't have a great deal north of Gympie. Labor hold those. So Labor have got an advantage there. They've got seats in Cairns, they've got seats in Townsville, Rockhampton, Keppel, where I am here. And they're going to be tough seats for him to win. Now, he's got to win at least 14 over the next 12 months to be mm. able to form government in his own right, which is almost impossible. But with that said, if he plays his cards right and he's willing to form a, a style of coalition, uh, a minor government supported by crossbenchers like the Catters and certainly with One Nation, we will never, as One Nation, give our preferences to the Labor Party. But, however, we will certainly make arrangements to give our preferences if, well, recommend our preferences, because let's not forget that the voters own their preferences themselves. Mm. But if David Christofoli wants to form government, I think the key is to ensure that he has a strong conservative crossbench that are willing to help him form government in this state. Absolutely. That makes total sense. So, David Christofoli, if you're listening, heed the advice of, of James Ashby, because I think it's very, very good. Now, James... 
Back to Palaszczuk. Um, she maintains mm. that she is on the right faction of Queensland Labor, but she keeled head over heels into wokery, not just with her initial support of the state treaty, but also with the new woke gender self-identification laws. I have to ask you, James, can Queensland mm. Labor really hold Anastasia Palaszczuk up as a role model for women when she clearly doesn't even know what a woman is? Yeah, you make some really good points. No, <laughs> see, she may be the leader and she may be on the right faction of the Labor Party, which is more or less what I call old Labor. There's not too many of them left. <laughs> the problem that <laughs> Anastasia Palaszczuk has is the majority of her members are from the left faction. And so for her to maintain her premiership role, she must, must be flexible. She must bend further and further to the left. And then, of course, she wants to maintain seats that are progressively heading to the Greens. Now, the Greens hold two seats in Brisbane and Anastasia Palaszczuk is acutely aware of the fact she's bound to lose more to the Greens after this next election. So therefore, they're sort of fighting for that left vote in a, in a city vote. And that's the concern she'll be faced with. So a lot of the regions get forgotten and Anastasia Palaszczuk will just progressively move further and further to the left because, unfortunately for conservative parties, Labor voters stick with Labor, despite mm. what they're doing. They just don't move the needle. It's very rare for a Labor voter to then change and, and certainly vote blue or orange. Mm. Yes, and, and that is the difficulty. Um the conundrum of conservatism, isn't it? I mean, we're very individualistic, yeah. uh, which is wonderful, and that's one of the reasons I, I'm, I lean, I'm right-leaning, um, that why I'm conservative, but by proxy, we mm. splinter off sometimes, so it, uh, it must drive the major conservative sure. parties mad. Um, but I tend to think all of that is a good thing because that leads me to my final question, James, in terms of conservative voters splintering off. There is another option, isn't there, for Queenslanders to vote for in the upcoming election, and that is, of course, One Nation. James, why should Queenslanders mm. choose One Nation over the LNP and Labor? Daisy, I see One Nation have held a, a very responsible role as a crossbench and as a um, balance a power partner to the previous coalition government. And we never, ever roadblocked good legislation. We cooperated very well with the coalition. And I think if they want to see their way back to government here in Queensland, they've got to take on board the, uh, the, the voices of those other conservative minor parties like One Nation. We'll be coming out with a suite of policies at this state election. We're not going to bother people at this moment. I think there's some... Uh, it, the voters of this state need a break. We've just had a very lengthy, long um, referendum period of 12 months, 18 months for some people. They've had to hear politicians rattle off about rubbish on, on The Voice. They need a break. They're already doing it tough at the moment. They just want to get through Christmas. And I think when the new year starts, voters of Queensland will see a, a very new One Nation policy set of guide, uh, um, which we'll reveal then. And it's up to Queenslanders, though, if they want accountability in this state, in this next government, they are going to need a very strong, robust party who knows who they are, who's not going to bend, who's not going to um, uh, move away from where we stand on policy. What we say today is where we'll be in two, three and five years' time. You know what you get with us and we're the only party out there saying the things that you're thinking. 
Very well said, James Ashby. Certainly that is many of the reasons why I'm a great admirer of, of the One Nation Party. You are fantastic. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the show this evening. This was really fun. Thanks. Good on you. Thanks, Daisy. Well, that's all we have time for tonight on The Daisy Cousins Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Thank you to my guests and also to everyone who made this program possible. Up next is Damien Khoury with The Other Side. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.